Well, if you're new or visiting this morning, we just want to say welcome and we hope the Lord can use this morning to minister to you. And so glad that you're here. We're in a series called Shoe Leather Wisdom and it's out of the book of James. And uh, we're in chapter 3, so you can turn there this morning, open your Bible, your phone, or whatever you're using. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to start from a different angle this morning. Uh, I'd like to uh, stop and think about, have you think about the issue of maturity, right? So when you think of being mature or somebody being mature, what do you think of? How, how would you define it? How, what words would you put to it, right? Um, especially when you think in terms of uh, Christian maturity, uh, especially in leadership. And so to get us to start looking at that, I'd like to start from a different vantage point. I'd like to start from the vantage point of the, uh, a song, a hymn. I went to a funeral this week, and I've always said funerals teach you a lot more about life than um, what weddings do, right? And uh, at this funeral, they were singing the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And uh, verse 3 uh, stood out to me, and I'd like to use that as the launch point this morning as we talk about uh, Christian maturity. It reads like this, Holy, 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 Though the darkness hide thee, and though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. That song will be going through your head all day, and that's a good thing. All right. One of the things that uh, Scripture points out, and you don't have to go very far, you don't have to dig that deep, uh, but it, it, it clearly points out that God is the most balanced, trustworthy, gracious, and steadfast person in the universe. His, he's gravitational in His person. Uh, scripture says that He's magnificent in His presence. That's why the angels and the cherubim cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Uh, he's astounding in His character. Uh, Jesus, being the exact representation of His nature, that's found in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, reflected this glory. Jesus was a people magnet. He couldn't go anywhere and people flocked around him. And he was a, a magnet both in terms of his character and his words. It's with reason that his is called the greatest life that was ever lived. He was galvanizing. And his leadership and character have been studied and written about as a model for all of us to follow. Just think about how many books you'd have if you got all the books gathered together that talk about Jesus or his leadership or how he modeled it, right? It'd be thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And so it's something that is important. And the question is, why is that important for our thinking this morning? And it's important because we... Uh, know that one of the main coaching jobs of the Holy Spirit is to conform us to His image. We are to become like Christ. Uh, One of the uh, places where it phrases this is found uh, in 2 Corinthians. And it reads like this. It says, We all, with unveiled face, so it's talking about a person before who couldn't see Jesus, didn't understand it, uh, didn't know about eternal life, and then comes to a place where he realizes Jesus is truly the Messiah the Son of God, and that only salvation can be found in Him, when that door opens and there's that kind of ah moment, it says, with, we then look at God with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And this idea of transformation is the idea that when we come to Christ, that just begins the process. Right? It, it's not the end of the process. So often we treat that as the end point when actually it's actually the beginning point because from that point on, now we can actually start to become like Jesus himself because we have, Scripture says, the Holy Spirit. And this, this phrase, transformed into his image, is a powerful phrase because that means we're to be like him, right? In his nature, in his character. Uh, Romans 12 talks about uh, this in terms of conforming our minds to think like him. You know these verses well, but they fit really uh, with the theme we're talking about this morning. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, this is Paul talking to the Roman church, by the mercies of God. In other words, as God has extended his mercy to us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Notice that idea there of holiness again. And uh, holiness simply is the word for wholeness. Okay? In other words, God's the most wholesome person in the universe. It says, um, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so this idea is that it becomes a practice, something we step into, that we consistently measure our actions and our character choices against what we think Jesus would have done, what Scripture tells us we should do. And, and so the renewal of our mind then means that we change from the inside and conform not just our thinking, but also our actions to the heart and the mind of God himself. So <clears throat> James has been talking about this transformation mostly on the tongue level. We spent the last two weeks looking at the tongue. But today we'll begin to look at it from the heart level. And, uh, and we're in the end of chapter 3. And so we'll start with verse 13. <clears throat> and James says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now the first thing I want to point out, and when you read this, the phrase that usually stands out is meekness of wisdom. And usually we read that as the weakness of wisdom. Okay? Meekness does not mean weakness. Uh, another way you could read that is show his works in the humility of wisdom. Right? Humility probably works better for us than meekness because we don't have a context for the word of meekness. James is talking about having great wisdom and character, which are both essential values for moral strength. You can't have moral strength or virtue if you don't have wisdom and character. Humility is the opposite of pride. Um, we're going to explore this later in James chapter 4, so uh, we'll get to that in a week or two. But it's the foundation for being wise and understanding as a person. Humility or meekness is the counterbalance to ego, the I want side, the I said side, the I want it my way side. That we all have. And we have uh, covered a little bit of this in the series, how some of Jane's comments are somewhat autobiographical, particularly, especially his comments to his brother Jesus when he was younger. And, uh, you know, they actually recorded James. I hope mine aren't that I said to my brothers when they were younger. But it must be pointed out that James didn't stay this way. 
James really transformed. Uh, he repented. He came to full faith. He grew in spiritual maturity. And as a result, he became one of the key leaders of the early church. His name is mentioned right up there with the Apostle Paul, with the Apostle Peter, with John and James, the two brothers, sons of Zebedee. He was one of the key leaders that held the, the early church together. He was known as James the Just. right? And that tells you something right there. What character quality emanated from him? Uh, he was just. He was a man of fairness. The reason being that he was a man of intense prayer. Uh, so often did he intercede, it is said, that it that his knees became like camel knees from his constant prostration before the Lord. In other words, he was a praying man. He believed in the power of prayer and he spent a lot of time in it, attending to it. And also he died a martyr's death. He was a man of such character, they had a hard time trapping him and so they actually set up a roost where they, uh, as legend has it, invited him to come speak. And so he was on one of the pinnacles of the temple. He was going to speak and it turned out to be a trap and they threw him off the pinnacle. When he landed, he didn't die. And so they began to stone him. And one of the guys took a fuller's club, which is a big wooden mallet they used to beat out laundry in the washroom and doing it. And they, they beat him to death with that and crushed his head in. So he died a martyr's death. But what he's remembered for is the incredible character he had. And what he's remembered for is being the brother of Jesus. In other words, not just that he was the brother, but he was like Jesus. He was his brother. The Expositor's uh, Bible commentary points out that James is talking here because uh, as the leader of the early church, he's speaking to leaders of the early church. It points out that James is talking to those who are or were desiring to become teachers at the beginning. So in chapter 3, he writes, he writes this. Remember, we covered this last week. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Oh, joy. And we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. And we talked about the fact that James was saying, hey, one of the key qualities of a good leader is he's got to learn to rein his tongue in. Right? Because... Uh, flapping lips sink ships, right? And so uh, James was pointing out, and we've talked about um, the importance of getting our words right. But James now this morning is going to point out, not it's not just a matter of getting our words right, it's also, uh, and, and learning to bridle the tongue, but it's also an issue of having a right heart, of having uh, our heart being bridled. And it's, it's not only the tongue that needs bridled, but also the heart. So watch carefully. We'll look here. We'll read verses 13 through 16. And it reads like this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be every disorder and every vile practice. James is saying, if you, if you grow crooked in your heart, you can have a lot of talent, but if you don't have the, the coexisting character to rein that talent in, it's always going to go sideways. Any of us seen really talented people go sideways? Right? Talent does not protect us from fatal flaws. Only when it's encased in godly character can that talent actually become what it's supposed to become. 
So James is not looking for outward conformity, but rather for inward transformation. And notice these qualities in here have to do with inward transformation. Notice how good conduct or meekness or humility and wisdom are counterbalanced against bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. You notice those don't go together, right? They don't exist very well together. Let's look at those terms a little bit. They're, they're interesting uh, how they come up. Let's, there we go. Uh, the word wise in the Greek is uh, for the word sophos or uh, sophia. We know that. It's, it's called wisdom. And it's a technical term in the language, which simply means it's a Jewish term for a teacher, a scribe, or a rabbi. So it says here, who is wise or who is the teacher, right? That's what James is kind of pulling out. And then the next word uh, that you see in there is the word understanding. Uh, In the Greek, it's epistemon. And it means uh, one who's an expert or who has had special training. So uh, James is saying, who is wise and understanding? In other words, who's the teacher? Who's had special training uh, among you? Right? So that, that reads a whole lot differently, right? If you understand, you go, oh, he's talking to people who are claiming to be teachers. And if you uh, go a little farther in uh, good conduct, uh, good conduct, uh, oh, there we go. The Greek word there is astrotophies. I can't even pronounce that word. All right. But what it means is um, the manner of life. In other words, the manner of life that they live. So if you're walking through that, you read this again. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? In other words, who wants to be a teacher? Who's been trained specially for this? Uh, in our language, that'd be who went to seminary, right? Okay. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the humility of wisdom. I'll put in humility there because we understand it better. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. There's this place where you get in life where you come and you are given a role and you start to realize there's a gap between what you're saying and what you actually do or how you actually operate. And James wants to close that gap. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor like I am, if you're a fireman like David is, if you're a teacher, if you're a businessman. He's talking about that gap that we all experience. And James here is taking direct aim at the twistedness in the heart of man. The same twistedness that put Jesus on the cross. Uh, We call it, uh, we have words for it, we call it politics, right? Uh, Boardroom deals is another phrase we use. Uh, Playing cards from the bottom of the deck. Being cunning or shrewd, we talk about as clever as a fox is language that we would throw out there. Um, uh, Outmaneuvering others, right? But whatever name it's called by, it's the inward calculation of me first. And if you think about that mindset, that um, greedy mindset that we wrestle with, uh, the motive can often be masked by a guise of friendship or loyalty. We'll look at that in just a second. But underneath it, uh, the essence of the attitude is one, I will do whatever it takes and and throw anybody under the bus as long as I can win. In other words, we're in a pressure situation here. 
You have to understand. I have to survive. And if it means throwing you under the bus, I'm so sorry. But this is where you get off and I keep going. Right? That's ingrained in us as humans. And secondly, if I can't win, then nobody else gets to win either. Right? You ever see a kid break a toy because if he can't play with it, nobody else gets to play with it either? Both of these, both of these constructs and mentalities uh, are characteristics of the heart of Satan. And James is saying is just as the fire of the tongue is ignited from the fire of hell. Remember when James was talking, he says the tongue's a, a, a fire, a world of iniquity, and it, it sets on fire, and, and it itself is set on fire by hell. So it's talking about our, our words can get lit up. You ever been lit up? Or maybe a better question is, what, what does it take to light you up? Right? Wow! Ginsu knife, right? Just chop them to pieces. Okay? We, we do that, right? What, what does it take to light you up? Well, James is saying it's, it's, we don't just get lit up in our words, that, but our heart gets lit up. We become enraged. We live in a spirit of anger. And he's talking about the fact that it's, it's really destructive. The insinuation in the text of the Greek as we read this passage is uh, not, I hope you don't do this, so here's the instruction so that you don't do this. It's actually, you're actually doing this, so please stop. Right? So this was going on in the church between brothers and sisters in Christ. Can that really happen? Can there be that kind of contention between brothers and sisters in Christ? The answer is all too sadly, yes. It actually happens all the time. Uh, Psalm 55 captures the spirit of this. Uh, David is writing, this is David writing of when Absalom tried to overthrow the kingdom and uh, created a conspiracy and a mutiny and David barely escaped with his life. And uh, you may have had a situation like that. He says, for it's, it's not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could, have, uh, I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within the God's house. We walked in the throng. You know, if you think about it, relational betrayal is always the most vicious and devastating, right? Um, uh, Pam and I went and saw the movie Solo uh, on Friday night. It's a movie about how Han Solo and Star Wars became Han Solo. And I, I won't wreck the movie for it if you haven't seen it. But there's a, a theme that runs through the movie. And one of the themes, and it's stated very clearly um, when one of the key leaders talks to Hans when he's a young guy and he says, don't trust anybody. Right? And we can kind of get to that place. Everybody's jaded, everybody's corrupt, and I'm not going to trust anybody. And uh, Psalm 55 goes on a little farther down. It says this. It says, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends and he violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, and yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. We call that what? Smile, and then I stab you in the back. Right? We, we, we're very familiar with that today. Hi, friend. While they take your promotion or they take the position at work that you thought was yours. Today we commemorate those who've lost their lives in the, the field of battle, and rightfully so, but I notice there's no holiday for those who've lost their lives in the battles that go on in this thing we call life. 
been a lot of people taken out by the treachery of other people. Those who've been taken out by others. And this, this phrase in Psalm 55, the war within his heart, is really graphic of the inner state of us sometimes because there is a war going on. Sometimes we are really ticked off. Sometimes we really want to lash out. And the Holy Spirit says, don't, don't. And, and the, the question is, will we or won't we? And James is talking about here, if you're going to be mature, then you have to listen to the Holy Spirit. You can't. Um, but I, I think this description of war within his heart is an amazingly accurate description. I mean, have you ever walked into a drawn sword of another person? Right? You thought they were your friend and then they let you have it and you're like, where did that come from? Like, what in the world? How did that kick off? I'm sure we all have in one form or another. In our uh, Thursday morning Bible study, we've been going through a book. Uh, I brought it up with me this morning. It's a fascinating book. It's the Ancient Testaments of the Patriarchs. It's written by a guy named Ken, jo- Ken Johnson. And what it is, is he is a, uh, a guy who has transcribed the Dead Sea Scrolls into English because he believes there's a lot for the Christian church to learn from the Dead Sea Scrolls, but most of what's in the scrolls hasn't been released to the church. And so uh, Ben, Ben's sitting over there. He suggested the book, and so we're churning through it as a group. And uh, what's fascinating is it's kind of the part we're reading through is the recollection of the brothers of Joseph. Right? Remember that story? The brothers were envious of Joseph and uh, they um, were mad that uh, he got more favor from their father Jacob than they did. And hey, we're brothers too and we were first. Why don't you love us as much as you love him? And so they conspired together. First they were going to conspire to kill him. But then instead they threw him in a pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites coming through, and he wound up in Egypt. And the recollection is of each of these brothers and uh, how they responded to that, uh, that situation. And um, there's two things that stand out here, really why it's worth reading. One is uh, how the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, was so clearly predicted in the writings. They used to say these were Christian uh, editorial comments put in, right? to make the history different, but this was 200 years before Jesus, right? So they can't be editorial comments because the editor wasn't here yet, all right? And, uh, so, and then the second thing is how prominent the issue of avoiding anger, lying, and inner rage uh, is in these stories that they, they talk about. Uh, I want to just give you one excerpt from the book of Dan because he's talking about his attitude towards Joseph and he talks about he was gripped in the, the, the spirit of envy and jealousy and rage and that he actually wanted to kill Joseph. And, um, and so he's saying this, he's on his deathbed and he's talking to his children and he says this, unless you avoid lying and anger and embrace love, truth and patience, you will perish. Very similar to what we're going to look at this morning. There is a blindness in anger. My children, and no angry man trusts anyone to tell the truth. This is a very interesting comment that it says far more about the person who's angry than whether the other people are trustworthy or not. It says an angry person doesn't trust anyone to tell the truth. And he says there's a blindness in anger. It says he treats his father and mother as enemies and his brother like he does not know him. And even if his brother is a prophet of the Lord, he disobeys him. He will not regard a righteous man and he ignores his friends. 
Anger surrounds him with a net of deceit and blinds his natural eyes and darkens his mind through lies. He sees what he wants to see and he only sees his own hatred all because of envy. Uh, and so he, that Dan is speaking of actually himself in connection, as I mentioned, to the affairs with his brother Joseph. And this witness is consistent with the other brothers in the book as well. As a matter of fact, and add a little rabbit trail here just for your edification, uh, a major theme in the book is avoid fornication. And they talk about how fornication messed up the, the family of Jacob. And story after story, you start with Reuben, who slept with uh, Billa, and he got disowned as the first. Simeon and Levi were enraged with anger, and they slaughtered the Shechemites. And, and it just goes down through the list. And the point that they were trying to make is that lust is always anger-based. Right? Lust is always anger-based. So if you're dealing with lustful thoughts or greedy thoughts, or envious thoughts, like we're talking about this morning, one of the things to understand is that that's the symptom of it. Behind that is usually anger or injustice. And if you can figure out what you thought was unjust or what you thought was unfair and get a handle on that, the outward symptoms usually go away. Most of us don't realize we're angry. But we do watch ourselves react and go, wow, I wonder why I did that. Right? We're really not very in touch with our, our inner thinking. And so I just want to show you that this thinking is consistent with Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 23 said this when he was describing, the, when he was assessing the leadership uh, of Israel, the time and their heart. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. What made them hypocritical? He said, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. What he's saying is they had missed a central and key article in faith, and that's this. Faith has to start from the inside and work its way out. So we make that same mistake, I think, in that if I do the right things, if I obey the right things, if, if I come to church and do that, therefore I'm okay. Rather than God has talk to me and spoken into my heart and I need to line my heart up and as I line my heart up I'll do these other things because they help with the lining of my heart up after a while if we quit lining our heart up we just depend on the outward structure but the transformation part of it went out the window a long time ago true faith changes the heart not just the posture Jesus attacked the core issue of greed for control Power and influence. He said, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Right? Talking about the inner state of their world. And that state says this. I don't want to give up my control. I don't want to give up my power. I don't want to give up my influence. And God helped a person who tries to take that from me. You know, there's a reason a lot of your neighbors and friends don't want to come to church or, or be a part of a church. Because they know the agenda. They know if they come to Jesus, if they were truly, truly to live the Christian life, they would have to give it up, their agenda. And they don't want to give that up. They don't want to give up the things they're doing. They don't want to change or be different. And that's why when you come and go, ah, yeah, I don't like organized religion. I'll do that gig. That, thanks. That's, what are they really saying? I understand the God issue and I understand what Jesus claims to be. I don't want to get too close to that. I might have to change. And I'm not sure I want to give up my power to do that. 
the core issue of self-indulgent was all about them. And as it was true for them, it's also true for us. We have the same nature, you and I. Getting anger and envy out of our heart is not as easy as we probably imagined when we first started following Jesus. Do you remember when you first started following Jesus and figured, how long will it take me to be godly? To be godly? Ah, six months I'll have this thing down, right? Not so much. Some of us have walked a lifetime and going, wow, this is way tougher than I had anticipated in cooperating with the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, it is what keeps many from following Jesus. Letting the Holy Spirit lance the pocket of pus that's in our hearts would seem to be a welcome thing. But it often is not. And we fight to maintain our inner kingdom, even if it's septic and toxic. It may be septic and toxic. It may be a pigsty, but it's my pigsty. And it may not be very big, but it's my corner and my mud, and nobody walks in my mud. And so when Jesus tries to come in there, we push him out as well. And James says this is especially deadly when it comes to leadership. Remember, he's talking in the context here about leadership. The Apostle Paul agrees with him. If you look at the list that qualify for an elder, uh, we'll pull up uh, here 1 Timothy first. It says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. We, get the, right, we go through those pretty quickly. Respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. But then it says this, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome and not a lover of money. Notice their greed and self-indulgence is wrapped in that description. That's why I, I was, Al, uh, uh, Robert was here this morning and I was thinking about saying it and I didn't say it, but he always said, you know, to be an elder, you need to have a little grit in you, a little life experience. You have to go through a couple hard things so that you, the character can actually be tested before you become an elder. And uh, I think back to that, that I became an elder when I was 24 and I'm thinking, wow, did my character match the call? And I'm thinking, not so much, right? Like, does it now? I hope so, but not so much. <laughs> okay. How about you guys, right? Does your character match the leadership station God has given you? Uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Not violent but gentle usually has to do with our words. It can be our actions, right? Obviously, uh, domestic violence has never left us. But usually it has to do with our words. And then this issue of not quarrelsome is the issue of being not contentious, right? And uh, it's, it's a really, we don't put a lot of weight on that, but uh, being contentious is something here that not only does Timothy talk about, but then if you go to Titus, Let's put Titus up there as well. Titus says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, the, the same list. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. It's the same expression. Uh, contentious with our words, but also contentious with our attitude. You get this in churches that um, work really hard to be right. Right? And we contend over truth. And... Pretty soon that church whittles down to about four people. And man, it is so good. There's only the four of us left. And we're the only ones with the truth, but I'm not so sure about you three. Right? Some of us have been in churches like that. It's, it's a deal. Um, Larry Osborne, uh, we've been going through this book 
has a, both an elder board and a staff. And it's called Sticky Teams, and it talks about um, you know, what makes for good leadership teams within the church. And it's a it's a brilliant read. But he says some things here that are in parallel to what we're talking about in James. And he's talking about uh, insisting on spiritual maturity. It was too long for me to type it out, so I'll just read it to you. That way Larry said it and I didn't say it. You know, it's in a book and you can't throw stones at me. All right. Finding leadership-oriented people is important. But it's even more important to find folks who meet the biblical minimum requirements for spiritual leadership. He goes on to say this, In many churches, the primary spiritual qualification for serving on the board or church leadership team seems to be a willing heart. Anyone who faithfully supports the church and works hard eventually finds himself or herself rewarded with a place on the team. And while I know of no church that claims this as their method of selection, I know of plenty where that's exactly the way things are done. But passages such as Acts 6, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, we just went through them, and 1 Peter 5, make clear that a willing heart is not enough. While not everyone will agree on the exact interpretation and application of each passage, one thing is certain. The New Testament church considered spiritual maturity to be a minimum qualification for leadership. By spiritual maturity, I mean a life that consistently exhibits the character of Jesus Christ. You'll also notice that all of these passages describe qualifications that focus on character, not on giftedness, not biblical knowledge, and not zeal. And that shouldn't surprise us, since some of the most divisive and self-centered people in our churches are those who are highly gifted, know the Bible inside and out, exhibit a zeal that puts the rest of us to shame. He says they also just happen to be jerks. Larry said that, not me. All right. One word of caution when it comes to applying these biblical standards to real-life situations. We need to strike a balance between two extremes. He says the first extreme is to interpret these passages with such a high standard that no one can match up. He said, I recall a pastor telling me that in his church of more than 500 people, no one except he and another ordained minister were qualified to lead. It didn't dawn on him, he says, that this was a terrible indictment on his six years of ministry there. Right? The other danger is to redefine or water down the qualifications. Too often, when someone fails to match up, we look the other way. Take, for instance, a board member whose family's falling apart. We'll offer sympathy, support, or maybe gossip, but we'll seldom ask them to step down despite multiple passages that teach a good home life is a necessary qualification for church leadership. The same thing goes for those who are contentious, self-willed, materialistic, or hot-headed. Even if they have great gifts, knowledge and leadership skills, they don't belong in ministry, be that on a board or a staff. Be especially leery, he says, of those who are angry or argumentative for all the right things, particularly a single-issue crusader. He says, I call these people pit bulls for Jesus. He says, you know the type. They're passionate and angry against sin and sinners. To most Christians, they look like on-fire spiritual heroes, but they're not. The Apostle Paul didn't make a mistake when he warned against putting quarrelsome people into leadership. And he didn't distinguish between those who are quarrelsome for the right things and those who fight over the wrong things. He simply said to keep contentious people out of leadership. And here's why. Pit bulls bite. He says that's what they do. If you allow one on your board or your ministry staff, don't be shocked when at some point of disagreement they turn around and bite you and bite hard. He says it's what pit bulls do. I think that's a brilliant distillation. Any of you been in a contentious church? Any of you been around some pit bulls? 
by the grace of God, we've been mercifully spared here. But could it happen among us? Yeah, it could. Do we have strong-willed opinion people in our church? Yes, we do. It's an issue of character and it's an issue of grace and spiritual maturity uh, that sets the table for that. And the list of the overseers uh, really supports that. So James then goes on and says, okay, what should it look like? What does uh, spiritual maturity look like? And he says, says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Purity is kind of the foundation piece. Uh, It's hard to be angry and pure at the same time. Have you noticed that? You've ever been dealing with lust and tried to be pure at the same time? How well does it go? Not very good. And the trick is you're wrestling between those two. There's an enormous pull. Which one's going to win out? And if you choose anger, then you get overrun by lust. If you choose purity, you have to let that go. It's, it's, it's a character issue. It says, but the wisdom of his first pure, then peaceable. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Gentle, again, gentleness is not weakness. Actually, I've come to learn that gentleness is great power. And if that's really true, then that means God's the most powerful person in the universe because the Bible says it's his kindness or his gentleness that leads us to repentance. Right? God himself is gentle. It says it's open to reason. In other words, you're willing to dialogue. It's full of mercy, good good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so one of the telltale signs of a healthy church, I've often said is gratefulness, but another telltale sign is a sense of peace within the body. I think just personally for me, one of the reasons I love Northview and why I think we're healthy is because if you watch after the service, people don't flee out the door. I've got to get away from those people. Ah! Right? People hang out here. I mean, and they talk and they visit. Matter of fact, sometimes I just have to turn the lights off and go, head towards the light. Right? I got to go home. I got to eat lunch. Because they're having so much fun and that spirit draws people because they sense this is a place of peace. And that's, that's what we want it to be. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you're saying, okay, great, Steve, glad. That's good for you and the elders and the staff and we hope you work on it. All right? And you say, well, I'm not a, a leader in the church, so none of this this morning applies to me. Well, stop for a second. What area of influence or leadership has God given you? How about your home? Right, dads? Are you gentle at home with your words and actions? Uh, how about at work? Right? How, how do you operate at work? Are you a peacemaker or do you rage with, with and against everybody else at work like everybody else does? How about in your neighborhood? Maybe, maybe you say, well, I don't really have any of this. So what, are you an aunt or an uncle? Are you a grandparent? You've got area of influence. You're gonna, you've got something to say and speak into the lives of those little ones and they're going to catch far more than what's taught. And what are they going to catch? Your character, right? James was this type of leader. Right? And he was begging other leaders to follow um, in his footsteps as he followed in Jesus' footsteps. Very similar to what Paul said. You know, and there's a greatness to James. 
Uh, it's a galvanizing book. It's a weird book, and that's a small little book, and it's different than most of the other epistles, and yet when you bring it up, people go, oh, I love James. When I was going to bring up, I said, well, we're thinking about doing, oh, James, yes. Well, you've been James hundreds of times. I know, but I love it. You know, there's just something practical. There's just something down-to-earth, shoe-leather type, this is the where I live, it speaks to me kind of thing that jumps out. And uh, that's why this book has had such a strong appeal through the centuries. And here's the thing. I would like to study James in such a way that we capture it so that we capture the same greatness he captured so that when we get to heaven, we will have had represented him well down here. James is a great book. James was a great person. I'd like us to have greatness in us as well. And where does the greatness come from? It comes from above. That wisdom comes from above. It comes from God. It's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reasons, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Do you think a church like that would be attractive to people? I think it is. I think it is. Right? May there also be greatness in us. And may we let God move us away from our anger, our envy, and our bitterness and move towards what James is talking about. Let us have a wisdom that's from above. And may people recognize it. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we know that uh, this is a process. That all of us have had enormous ups and downs, ins and outs, backwards, sideways, and sometimes even, by your grace, two steps forward. And as we think about that this morning, it's a tremendous challenge to be a person of peace. Even with myself sometimes. Lord, the battle isn't outside. The battle's inside my heart. To be a person of peace with you and with myself is the first step in being a person of peace with others. Help us get in touch with that on whatever level you're speaking to us this morning. You're speaking to me in one way. You're probably talking to others in a different way. We're not all wired the same. We don't all respond to life the same. We don't all have the same personalities or makeups, but this applies to all of us. Help us, Lord, to be great in you, like James is talking about, and help quell that inner place of anger and bitterness and envy. May we represent your character well. We ask for this grace in your name. Amen.